Welcome, welcome, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this episode 18 of the Rambling Brews podcast, hosted by me, the main man, Tim, the man that's causing all this. And if you haven't noticed, yes, I've got a little pep in my step. I'm Deion Sanders, primetime high stepping down the sidelines because the NHL playoffs start today. Let's go. This is going to be such a fun episode. It's the best time of the year. If you ask me, it's like Christmas. We're going to break down each playoff series, talk about the tail of the tape for each matchup, what to look for, which players I think are going to put on a show. I'm going to give my predictions on who will advance to round two. Also, this week, I'm honored to welcome back a friend of the Rambling Brews podcast to break down the Pittsburgh Penguins and New York Islanders first round series. Seth Rorabaugh from Trib Sports here in Pittsburgh covering the Penguins will be joining me a little bit later. I think you guys will enjoy the hell out of that conversation. And outside the NHL playoffs, new details have emerged in the Jack Eichel versus the Buffalo Sabres organization saga that I mentioned would happen at the end of this season back on some earlier episodes. We'll dive into that. Some NHL coaches have been shit-canned. In the NFL, teams were sent memos that players' contracts are not guaranteed if they get injured outside the football facility. Just a gong show in the National Football League. The Kentucky Derby winner, Medina Spirit, tested positive for banned substances. I cannot wait to get into all this. But first, last week I mentioned the 30-day off-the-piss challenge off the booze but this week in honor of the nhl playoffs i had to do it the playoffs are kicking off so the silver bullet has returned another day another pod another cold cores light And right off the rip, I want to mention this past Thursday was my daughter's second birthday. Um, Just crazy how time flies, man. It seems like just yesterday, my wife and I were bringing her home uh, for the first time. And she's already, too, growing like a bad weed, man, as my grandparents used to say. And just just awesome. We had a great time. We went to the park. She was swinging on the swings, having a blast. We had some cake. Uh, We're having family come in this weekend. Cannot wait for that. It's going to be awesome. Um, and I've been really trying to get her into hockey. It's pretty cool with the NHL playoffs right now. Hopefully with hockey on all the time, I can try to get her into it. And I know what you're probably thinking right now as you're listening, you're thinking, Tim, come on, she's two. Like, how's she going to get into hockey? And I understand. She just wants to watch Minnie Mouse and Tots and other things like that, little kid shows, and listen to music. And I get it. But I've been really trying to put her in front of the TV, get her involved with hockey, just kind of watching it. And, you know, there's a lot of action when you watch it on TV and stuff too, so she can follow the puck and try to get into it. And I think it's pretty cool. We've been trying to get her to chant, you know, let's go pens and, and clap and smile and stuff whenever they're, uh, they score. And I'm just a little bit nervous because if anybody that knows me and has ever watched hockey with me, especially playoff hockey and penguin hockey, I, I'm very invested in the game, obviously. And you can probably tell that from this podcast over the last, you know, 18 episodes now. But I'm very invested in the in the game. I tend to yell at the TV. I get angry if they lose. I'm in a bad mood. We've been over this. We've been over this on previous episodes, and that's pretty much just how I am. I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm just very invested in the game. I'm just hoping that you know she doesn't pick it up and I don't set a bad example or scare her or anything. So we'll see how it goes. I'm really excited uh, for the NHL playoffs to be here, obviously. And I think now we, we should definitely jump in and break down some of these series. Uh, so we'll start with the Central Division. The Central Division, man. 
it's been dominated pretty much by the Carolina Hurricanes this year. I know the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Florida Panthers had um, good seasons, and they were right on the Hurricanes' ass pretty much for the whole season. But from coast to coast, really, the most dominant team with no dips really at all uh, was the Carolina Hurricanes in this division. And they deserve to be the one seed, and they draw the Nashville Predators in the first round. The Nashville Predators get the four seed. Uh, they barely squeak by the Dallas Stars. And a lot of people, including myself, thought the Nashville Predators would be sellers at the NHL trade deadline. They really weren't doing much. And, um, you know, I was thinking, you know, they're puttering a little bit. Like, they might as well try to gain, gain some assets for future um, years and stuff and maybe get rid of some of their players that can help out teams. And they chose to stand pat pretty much. And um, it definitely benefited them for sure. I mean, they got into the NHL playoffs. I'm not sure they wanted to draw the Carolina Hurricanes in round one, but hey, the old adage, just get in the dance and anything can happen. So, uh, the season series for these two teams, the Hurricanes and the Predators, uh, the Hurricanes were six and two, so they took six of the eight games. Uh, the Predators didn't even get a point in overtime; they were just two six and zero, oh, um, really just outmatched um, in, in the eight games they played each other. And the Hurricanes—they have an incredibly fast team. I mean, they have one of the best top sixes in the NHL, the top two lines that is, and they're led by their um, you know best player Sebastian Ajo. He's a guy. He's like he's so small and he's just shifty. You never think he would be like that. Uh, dominant and that he plays big, but he's just a small guy and he's got a lethal shot. He's got great vision. He can really create out there. He's a good skater. Uh, he had 57 points in 56 games this year to lead the team. Um, they've also got guys like Nino Niederreiter and uh, Tuevo Teravainen, uh, just two of the best names in hockey right there as well. Um, you got Vince Trocek. I wanted to talk about Vince Trocek a little bit. He's the pride of Upper St. Clair. So if you're from the Pittsburgh area, you know where Upper St. Clair is. It's in the South Hills. Um, he's probably one of the biggest names in the NHL currently from the uh, the city of Pittsburgh. I know. I think he moved on and moved to Minnesota or somewhere up in the uh, like the Midwest in the in the North Midwest, I guess. Um, and I'm not sure if he went and played in Canada or not, but uh, to a more prominent place where he could develop his hockey skills because at the time hockey wasn't really that dominant here, and you know you didn't have really great programs and stuff like that. No knock on programs here, but it's no Minnesota or you know North Dakota areas like that, or even up in Canada. But he's still um, the pride of Upper Saint Clair here. It's pretty awesome to see him in the NHL and really playing well. And I think he's going to be a key factor in this series. Um, this year, he tied a career best 0.91 points per game. Um, just really, really um, efficient. He's effective for sure. He's a great defensive forward. Um, he can score. He can skate. He's one of the best skaters on that team for sure. And I think he's going to cause a lot of problems for Nashville. I mean, they're built, Nashville's built on their defense with Roman Yossi, Ryan Ellis, and Matias Ekholm. And in goal, we'll talk about goal with UC Saros in a moment. But it's gonna be a it's gonna be an interesting matchup for sure. And the bench boss for the Carolina Hurricanes, their coach Rod Brendamore. Last week I talked about how he's looking for a new contract, but he wants to wait until his whole staff gets paid. And I've seen conflicting reports that he signed a deal uh, for like one point eight million dollars a year. I've seen which would be drastically low. Uh, compared to some of the other coaches in the NHL for how good he's been and how good he's going to be um, just based on his track record thus far in the NHL as a coach. And But I've also seen where that's not that hasn't been confirmed. And uh, we'll talk about in a little bit with some of the coaching uh, vacancies there are in the NHL that Rod Brendamore potentially could be uh, one of the top targets for some of those teams looking for a coach. So, um, But in this series, I think Rod Brendamore, he's a better coach to me than John Hines. And I think it's really going to be you know, an advantage for the Carolina Hurricanes that they have just a much better coach, in my opinion. 
Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see, especially with the home ice advantage for the Hurricanes and being able to get the matchups and stuff like that. It'll be interesting to watch those two coaches play chess. But I think you know Rod Brendamore is a, a much better coach in my opinion. Um, so that's an advantage for the Carolina Hurricanes. The Nashville Predators they're led by Philip Forsberg. I mentioned Roman Yossi on the back end, their captain. He's one of the best defensemen in the league, and they've got a lot of playoff experience in their lineup. Um, they went to the Stanley Cup final a couple years ago, lost to the Pittsburgh Penguins. Um, they've had a couple couple good runs prior to that and even after that, but they've just really been kind of underachievers. I mean, they've had good lineups and they've made some splashes in free agency and at the trade deadline and stuff like that, which is a little bit out of the norm for the Nashville Predators and David Poyle, their general manager. He's he's been there for like 50 years, it feels like. I think it's like 20 something, but he um he really doesn't make too many big splashes or he hasn't over the course of his career, but he has recently trying to get them over the hump after they got to the Stanley cup final and try to capitalize on that a little bit, but they really just haven't been able to do it. And, um, you know, I think one of the biggest aspects of this series is going to be the play on special teams because the Carolina hurricanes have the second best power play in the NHL this season with 25.6% conversion rate. And, uh, the predators are 29th in the league at 75.4% on the penalty kill. So that's a horrible matchup for the Nashville predators. Now I know you don't get as many power plays. We talked about that with officiating in the NHL. You don't get as many power plays in the playoffs, but for the power plays you do get, you got the second best power play in the league. The only power play better than the Carolina hurricanes is the Oilers. And they got that guy, McDavid and dry So you can understand that, um, but you got the second best power play in the league going against one of the worst penalty killers, uh, penalty penalty killing units, I should say, in the league. It's just a terrible matchup. On the flip side, um, you know, staying with special teams, the Predators' power play is seventeen point six percent, which is good for twenty fourth in the league. So bottom feeder power play, and the Hurricanes they've got the third best penalty kill percentage. So a major advantage special teams wise for the Carolina Hurricanes. And in the goal crease, league-wide, these two teams rank first and second in team save percentage. So for the Nashville Predators, you look at UC Soros, their starting goaltender. He's pretty much taken the net from Pecorine this year. He's the future. He's going to be the guy, hopefully, probably for them, if you're a Predators fan for the next decade. Um, he's that good. And then you look at uh, Peter Morazic for the Carolina Hurricanes. He's going to be the starter there. But they had a rookie, Alex Nadelkovich. He came in, and I hope I'm not butchering that name, but he's been a revelation when Peter Morazic was out. He really kept them afloat and played well. You could argue that Nadelkovich uh, could be starting game one, but I think they're going to go with the experience and Peter Morazic, uh, the veteran. So it's going to be UC Soros versus Peter Morazic, and I think, like I said, with these two teams being first and second in team save percentage this year in the regular season, goaltending's pretty much a wash. I just don't see how the Nashville Predators can match up against the Carolina Hurricanes with their speed, the, the special teams factor I talked about. And with the goal crease basically being a wash, I don't really see any advantages for the Nashville Predators. Maybe a little bit on the blue line with Roman Yossi and Ekholm and, and um, Ryan Ellis, like I talked about. But, I mean, you've got some good – you've got some dogs on the blue line for – uh, the Carolina Hurricanes as well. So um, my prediction is the Hurricanes in six games. I wouldn't be surprised it goes five, uh, but I think the Predators have a little bit more pride than it get blown off the ice. So I'm going to go with the Carolina Hurricanes in six games. So swig a beer for the Hurricanes getting their first round series win. Staying in the Central Division, I know I mentioned the Florida Panthers and the Tampa Bay Lightning had great seasons this year, just right behind the Carolina Hurricanes in the division, and it's going to be the Battle of the Sunshine State in the first round. you got the two-seeded Florida Panthers versus the three-seeded Tampa Bay Lightning. 
and I cannot wait to watch this. This year, uh, head-to-head, the Florida Panthers were 5-2-1 and one against the Lightning. The Lightning 3-5, and five, so no loser points, no overtime points for them. Um, the Tampa Bay Lightning are the defending Stanley Cup champions. They beat the Dallas Stars last year in the bubble. And get this, the Florida Panthers have not won a playoff series since 1996. So if you're a Florida Panthers fan, and I know there's not a lot of them, that's a, that's a joke going around all, all the time in the NHL for fans and, and online. Um, but if you're a fan down there in Fort Lauderdale in Sunrise, Florida, you're chomping at the bit for a playoff series when it's been a hell of a long time. Um, the Florida Panthers entered this series having won six straight games. Uh, they've won 11 of their last 14 uh, since April 13th, and they just played the Tampa Bay Lightning in one of the last games at the end of the regular season, and those two teams already knew they were going to play in the playoffs, and they were really trying to set the tone. I mean, there was 150-some penalty minutes between the two teams, lots of fights, a couple suspensions, a couple fines. Um, it's going to be an electric factory this series. I can't wait to watch it. Um, if you're a fringe hockey fan or a hockey fan at all, I would definitely recommend watching this series. It's going to be high-flying, high-scoring, very physical. Um, It's just going to be a great, great series to watch. I cannot wait for this. Um, The game breakers in this series for Florida, Jonathan Huberdeau, he was the leading goal scorer, um, or leading point getter, I should say, for the Panthers, 61 points in 55 games. He had three goals and four assists in seven games against Tampa Bay this year, so a point per game against the, uh, the Lightning. Sam Bennett, he came over from Calgary at the deadline and set a franchise record for the Florida Panthers, getting 15 points in his first 10 games. He's currently on a six-game point streak. He's a guy that can really, really get under your skin. He plays on the edge. He play, he, he walks the line of um, dirty and physical, uh, but he can also chip in on the score sheet, as I just mentioned. So I think he's going to play a big role in this series as well, and he's really going to – I think he's going to get under the skin of some of the high-end guys for the Tampa Bay Lightning, um, like Braden Point. He's a game-breaker for the Lightning. He had 48 points this year in 56 games. I think that's a little bit down for him, uh, typical to what he – I think he had 92 points in the, the season last year, and I think he had a little bit of a, a down year in terms of stats, but – Still, 48 points in 56 games. He had six points against the Panthers this year um, in eight games, seven games, sorry. And uh, Victor Hedman on the back end for the Tampa Bay Lightning, an unreal defenseman, one of the best defensemen in the league. I talked about it last week with the Norris Trophy in my ballot for the Norris Trophy. He would finish third, but I wouldn't be surprised if he wins it. He averages 25 minutes and eight seconds of ice time per game, which is just absurd. He plays in every situation, power play, penalty kill, uh, five on five. He matches up against the other team's best players. He's going to be matching up a lot against Jonathan Huberto, I would imagine, um, as I mentioned. And you can't forget this point, too, about the Tampa Bay Lightning. They're going to get Nikita Kucherov back. Now, this guy, a couple years, he's a couple years removed from 128 points. Um, very McDavid like that season he had from what we're seeing from McDavid this year. And last year in the playoffs, he had 34 points. He led the league in points in the postseason. They won the Stanley Cup. So I'm just not really sure what you're going to get from him. You know, he hasn't played in over a year. He didn't play one game this whole season. Um, He was injured in the preseason, and then they basically held him out, which I think is a little bit of uh, cap circumvention. And we can get into that in a different day. But he basically has been practicing with the team in my understanding for the last month or two and probably could have played, but they don't, they don't have the cap space and they wouldn't be cap compliant if he was in. So he's sitting on the long-term injury reserve and he's going to be ready to go. And I saw their coach, John Cooper, he came out the other day and he said, uh, it's looking likely that Nikita Kucherov will be ready for game one. Well, no shit. He's been practicing for a month and a half. And since the very beginning of the season, everybody's been saying his injury will have him back in time for the playoffs. So that's a huge get uh, for the Tampa Bay lightning. But you got to wonder if you're a lightning fan, 
you know, what you're going to get from Kucherov, but really he's better than most of the guys in the NHL, probably even playing 80% or just a little bit rusty. Uh, so I look for him to have a huge impact there. Um, in goal, you've got you've got to give the edge to Tampa Bay. I mean, Andre Vasilevsky is the best goalie in the NHL. He had 31 wins and 42 starts this year. And I don't know how many goalies can say this as like how how, how big of a workload he gets, but he never got pulled one time. Never pulled one time. It happens to every goalie. You hear it all the time. Oh, you had a bad night, bad night. Trying to get, the coach is trying to get the uh, the team fired up. Nope, never got the hook one time. Unbelievable. Um, I forgot to mention too that Steven Stamkos has missed 16 games that, this year. He had 17 goals and 17 apples on the regular season. He's also set to return for Game One with Kucherov. So big boost for the uh, the lineup of the Tampa Bay Lightning and big problems for the Florida Panthers uh, defensively. And then staying with the goal. Um, the goal crease, it's been a little bit spotty for the Panthers. I mean, they play uh, Sergei Bobrovsky $10 million a year, and he really has been up and down. Um, he's got a 19-8-2 record with a 2.91 goals against average and a .906 save percentage, so decent, not bad. Um, you'd expect a little bit more from a guy making 10 sheets a year. But you have Spencer Knight, the young rookie goaltender. He came in, he played pretty well, and Chris Dreger has been a godsend for this team. So, I'm pretty sure Bobrovsky's going to get to start in game one, but I think he's going to be on an extremely short leash. If he starts letting in bad goals and kind of performing how he's notoriously performed in the playoffs, going back to his time in Columbus, I could see him getting the hook, and I, I would think Dreger would go in next. But um, they've got some options, and they've got Joel Quinville, one of the best coaches in NHL history, so he's got his finger on the pulse of that team, and I think he'll be able to, to drive the boat for sure, especially if he's got to make a goaltending change and get the boys fired up and ready to play. So um, one note I wanted to mention on this uh, series, which is pretty cool, is Tampa Bay, they were the only team this year in the NHL to be undefeated, and when they lead after the second period, they were 26-0-0, so no losses at all whenever they went into the third period with the lead. The last team, uh, the last two teams to do that were the Pittsburgh Penguins. They went 39-0-0 in 2016 and the Chicago Blackhawks went 25 0 0 in 2015. Both of those teams won the Stanley Cup. So, with that stat, you would think I was going to pick Tampa. Uh uh-uh. uh. I'm going Florida Panthers in seven games. The swig of beer for the Cats, baby. I want to see some rats all over the ice. We'll pivot over to the North Division, the All Canadian Division. Uh, the first matchup, we've got the one seeded Toronto Maple Leafs versus the four-seeded Montreal Canadiens. And believe it or not, it's pretty crazy because these two teams are original six teams, but it's the first time they've played each other in the playoffs since 1979. And I always try to remember back. I don't know how long Toronto, it doesn't make any sense to me now, but how long the Toronto Maple Leafs were in the Western Conference. I know in uh, 93, I believe they played the LA Kings, Gretzky's Kings in the conference final. Um, and then obviously Gretzky's Kings won and they went on to lose to Montreal. The last time a Canadian team has won the Stanley Cup was 1993, the Montreal Canadiens. So it's going to be a pretty interesting matchup. Uh, this year, the Toronto Maple Leafs were 7-2-1 and against the Canadiens uh, and the Habs were 3-6-1. and uh, So a couple loser points there, but really dominated by Toronto. I mean, they're the better team. Um, and the Maple Leafs, they have enormous pressure right now. They haven't been out of the first round since 2004. And I think this COVID year may have saved them, man because they can avoid Boston or Tampa, who would normally be in their division, two juggernauts. Um, they can avoid those two teams at least until the third round. Um, so I think it's a huge disaster if they do not get out of the first round, especially getting the Montreal Canadiens um, in their first matchup. So 
Um, game breakers for the Leafs. You obviously got Austin Matthews. He has 14 points in 10 games uh, against the Montreal Canadiens this year. I believe he finished with 41 goals. Um, the Rocket Richard Trophy, the most goals in the NHL. I believe that's his first Rocket Richard as well. You got Mitch Marner. He's got 11 points in 10 games against Montreal this year. John Tavares, 10 points in 10 games. So really, really top-heavy, dominant forwards for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, and on the Montreal side, you've got Nick Suzuki. They play more of like a system. They play more as a unit. Uh, Nick Suzuki had eight points in 10 games. Jeff Petrie on the back end, one of the better, uh, most underrated defensemen, I think, in the NHL. He had 10 assists in 10 games this year against the Leafs. And Tyler Toffoli, the big acquisition in the, uh, this summer, coming over from Vancouver after his um, awesome performance for the Canucks last year in the playoffs and the latter half of last season. He had seven points in ten games, but he can really get going in a playoff series. He's tough to play against, so it's gonna be a it's gonna be a good matchup. But I think really, as far as the game breakers, you really can't match up with the Toronto Maple Leafs if you're the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, in the goal crease, there's a big question mark for the Leafs. Freddie Anderson, he's their starting goalie. Um, he's their best goalie. He's been their starter the last few years. Um, a lot of fans seem to be maybe kind of ready to move on from him, but they kind of have that Dallas Cowboys syndrome where, you know, they just think they're so important and they think the, you know, the Leafs are the best team in the NHL and they deserve to have the best goalie and blah, 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 blah. And they're ungrateful and all this stuff. And I really think Freddie Anderson's been pretty good. He hasn't been their problem. If you ask me just from afar, I'm not a Leafs fan by any stretch, uh, but I just don't think he's been their problem. Um, but this year he's been banged up a little bit. He hasn't played since March 19th with a lower body injury. Um, before that, he was 13 wins, 8 losses, 2 overtime losses with a 2.91 goals against average and a .897 save percentage. So <laughs> based on what I just said, he, he really wasn't performing that well um, you know, up to his caliber in my opinion. But their team is just very good offensively. They score a lot of goals, and they probably got him a lot of those wins. But Jack Campbell, he came in. Um, he was he was a godsend basically for this team when Freddie Anderson went down. You're thinking, oh shit, they're in trouble. Uh, but Jack Campbell came in and he went 17 wins, two losses, two overtime losses in his 21 games played with a 2.11 goals against and a 9.23 save percentage. So I think Jack Campbell's got to start game one. I mentioned that Anderson's their starter; he's their main goalie. But you got to ride who's hot right now. And Freddie Anderson, he's only played. Um, you know, he's played a limited number of games. He's been out for a long time. So if he's ready to go, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, Sheldon Keefe, the coach for the Maple Leafs puts him in, but I really, really think they should go with Jack Campbell, uh, to start game one. And then if he, he slips up in the first game or two, then you, you pull the, you pull the hook and you put Anderson in. Uh, but if you put Anderson in, you're kind of almost throwing him to the wolves. He hasn't played and the team's really rallied around Jack Campbell. So we'll see how it goes. Um, I'm just waiting for a dumpster fire for Toronto and just to see how pissed off the fans and the media up in Canada get because if they lose to Montreal, oh, mama, that's bad. I don't think it's going to happen, but uh, staying in the goal crease too for the Montreal side, Carey Price, he's been banged up this year. He's been banged up a lot. He's the consensus best goalie in the NHL. Everybody always says it, but I really haven't seen it the last five, six years. I think he's vastly overrated. Uh, people always say, well, he's got the gold medals. He's been great in the, in the Olympics. Well, no, I mean, that fucking team, they, they got like every guy on there is basically almost a Hall of Famer or going to be a Hall of Famer or should be a Hall of Famer. I would hope you could put any goalie in there pretty much uh, could get the job done. And, you know, it, and I think they just overvalue that a little bit. I think obviously he plays in a Canadian city in Montreal, so he's overvalued for that too. But he really, uh, you know, he wasn't great this year against Toronto. He was 1-2-1 and one with a 3.48 goals against average and a .868 save percentage. So very, very lackluster numbers, especially if you're allegedly the best goalie in the NHL. I don't see it. I kind of think he's far from it. 
Um, but that's just my opinion. Their backup, Jake Allen, he's not anything to write home about. He's decent if he has to go in, but I think if they have to put him in, they're in big trouble. I think they're in big trouble anyway. I think Carey Price needs to stand on his head if the Habs have any chance of winning this series, but I don't see it happening. I got the Toronto Maple Leafs in five games. So swig a beer for the Maple Leafs for potentially winning their first series since 2004. And the other matchup in the North Division was the two-seeded Edmonton Oilers versus the three-seeded Winnipeg Jets. The Edmonton Oilers were 7-2-0, no loser points, no overtime losses against the Jets this year. They won their last six in a row as well against the Jets. The Jets were 2-7 and and uh, no overtime losses, no loser points also. They were outscored 34-22 to by the Oilers in those nine games. Uh, the game breakers for the Oilers, obviously Connor McDavid. He just lit the Jets up this year. 22 points in nine games against them. He had at least two points in every game, including two three-point games and one four-point game. And I did want to mention, because I've been talking about it, especially last week, but over the last couple episodes, McDavid's chase for 100 points in a 56-game season. Well, what do you know? He got it. He has 104 points through 55 games. He's got one game left to go because the uh, season's been delayed a little bit, obviously, with some of the teams having COVID issues. Um, They've been locked in. We're talking about this playoff matchup between the Oilers and the Jets, but the Oilers' regular season is still not over just yet. Um, So I'm not exactly sure when they're going to play game one against the Jets, but McDavid does have one game left. He's got 104 points. I'm not sure if he's going to play or not since he's eclipsed the 100-point mark. Maybe give him a little bit of a rest. He's been carrying the team on his back for 56 straight games. but just unbelievable what he's been able to do, especially against the Jets. And Leon Dreisaitl, 12 points in nine games against the Jets. Tyson Berry really had a resurgence um, from his career for last year when he was playing in Toronto. He had a really, really bad year. He came over from Colorado. Um, they had big hopes for him. But a lot of defensemen go to Toronto, and they really just struggle. It's a tough place to play. You get blamed for everything if you're a new guy. Um, and he really had a bad year. He, he luckily got picked up in the offseason by the Edmonton Oilers, and I think he's really benefited, obviously, from you know just snapping tape-to-tape passes up to 97 and 29 and watching them and letting them do the work. And he's got uh, 48 points this season, played brilliant hockey, um, just just an unbelievable turnaround for him, and he's got to feel confident heading into a contract year for sure, but a, a, a legit chance to come out of the North Division here with the Edmonton Oilers and take a shot at the Stanley Cup. And then Darnell Nurse also on the back end. I mentioned him last week when I talked about my Norris Trophy uh, ballot and the candidates I think could win the Norris Trophy. He's right up there. He's been unbelievable. He only has 36 points in 56 games, but he does so much, uh, so much else on the ice. I mean, he's very physical. He fights. He plays uh, penalty kill. He plays top minutes. He matches up against the other team's best players. Whereas Tyson Berry, I mentioned he's more of an offensive-minded defenseman. Darnell Nurse gets points, but he's still very, very solid on the back end uh, from a defensive perspective. So those are some game breakers for the Oilers, and I'm not sure what the Winnipeg Jets are going to be able to do to stifle that. Uh, you got Nikolai Ehlers on the Jets side. He had eight points in nine games against the Oilers this year, but he missed the last two games of the season with an upper body injury. He's scheduled to return. We'll see what happens. I'm not sure how healthy he'll be, but they really need him to be 100% or at least close to it if they have any chance at all in this series. And Mark Shifley, the best player for the Winnipeg Jets, uh, he really, really struggled against the Oilers, as a lot of guys did. Whenever you get matched up out there against McDavid, you're one of the best players. You're checking McDavid. It's very, very tough. Uh, But Shifley had seven points in nine games this year against the Oilers, but he was a minus 12. Dash 12. (laughs) Not how you draw it up. You never want to be minus 12 in nine games if you're the top-line center. Um, 
And on the power play special teams battle here, the Oilers have the best power play. I mentioned when I was talking about Carolina, the Oilers have the best power play in the NHL at 28.1%, and the Jets' penalty kill is 80.3%. They're dead middle, 15th. Um, so I think that's a huge advantage for the Oilers. And if they get some power play opportunities and that power play is running through McDavid and Dreisaitl and you got Nugent Hopkins and Tyson Berry and, man, the, the, the Jets are in for a world of hurt here, I think. Um, in the goal crease, Mike Smith, He's a bit of a journeyman goaltender. He's played a, a lot in, um, you know, he, he played a lot in Arizona. He played in Calgary. Now he's in Edmonton. He's been up and down a little bit, battling for the net with Miko Koskinen, who I think Mike Smith's way better than Miko Koskinen, if you ask me. Um, but Mike Smith was 4-0-0 this year with a 2.06 goals against the average and a .936 save percentage. So really stellar numbers against the Jets. And Connor Hellebuck, who's one of the best American-born goaltenders of all time, he's got a Vezina Trophy for best goaltender in the league under his belt uh, a couple years back. He struggled this year. Um, he was 2-5 and five against the Edmonton Oilers with a 3.96 goals against average. Yikes. And a .877 save percentage. So uh, I think he'll clean it up a little bit. It's a clean slate in the playoffs. I think Hellebuck, I mentioned he's a Vezina winning goaltender. He's much better um, He'll, he's much better than his record shows against the Oilers, and I think he'll he'll be a little bit better this postseason. But you know he's too good of a goalie. I just don't think he's got enough to to stop the buzzsaw of McDavid and Drysaitel. So I've got the Edmonton Oilers in six games, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is a very very short series. So swig of beer for McDavid, potentially getting to the second round as well. We're going to jump over to the East Division now. I think if you look at it from one seed to four seed, for my money, it's the toughest division to get out of right now for the playoffs. And to break down the one-seeded Pittsburgh Penguins versus the four-seeded New York Islanders, I think we should send it over to Seth Rorabaugh now. What a great conversation it was. Enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor to bring back a friend of the Rambling Brews podcast for his second appearance. This man covers the Pittsburgh Penguins for Trib Sports here in Pittsburgh, one of the best beat writers in the business for my money, and if we were doing this podcast in person, I'd have an ice-cold land shark just waiting for him. He is Seth Rorabaugh. Thank you for coming back on the Rambling Bruce podcast, man. How's it going? Oh, real well. Again, after that great intro, like I said before, if you give me good intros like that, I'll come back all the time. <laughs> hey, anytime. Again, appreciate you coming on. And, uh, you know, we're at the NHL playoffs right now, so it's an exciting time for fans. And, you know, with the... Penguins playing their last game on uh, last Sunday, an afternoon matinee against the Buffalo Sabres that they won. And there really hasn't been a, a definitive time as of the time we're recording this when game one is going to be against the New York Islanders. Um, have you been doing anything, you know, to prepare yourself for the playoffs? And I guess what have you been up to in, in the last week or so? I know you're a guy that likes to, um, you know, go hiking and exploring and things like that. Have you been doing anything fun in that regard? No, not really. Um, really, when you get in the playoffs, it just, it's just all time consuming. Um, it really, any kind of personal time is just non-existent. Um, been writing a lot of preview stories, things like that. Uh, and obviously, you know, just given the current circumstances, it's a little bit more difficult just given that you can't really talk to people face to face. Everything's over the phone or video chats, things like that. So, um, no, I mean, I mean, this is a little bit unusual this right now for a lot of reasons, but, um, you know, we have basically a week or so here between games, whereas normally it's maybe like four or five days. So you actually have a little bit more time here to kind of spread all that stuff out. But not really, I mean, it's it's been nothing but just kind of writing preview stories for the playoffs or, you know, doing the work for preview stories uh, uh, really ever since uh, the last game on Saturday. 
Right. Yeah, it makes total sense. And uh, Sidney Crosby was on uh, Pittsburgh Talk Radio today on Mark Madden Show, and he mentioned, I thought it was crazy, that they actually haven't been told exactly when the first game against the Islanders is going to be. Um, but getting right into that, the Pittsburgh Penguins, they did clinch the division this year, their first division title since 2014. And like I said, they drew the New York Islanders in the first round. It's a little different than your your typical year, right, uh, Seth, where you know, if you get a you get the one seed in your division or maybe the one seed in your conference in a normal year, you're looking at a team in the first round that's probably just squeaked into the playoffs. But the way this COVID year has gone, the Penguins draw the Islanders, who are a pretty good team, not far off from the uh, the Penguins as far as standings and the way their season went. I know they slid the last couple games. I think they had lost seven of their last ten. Um, but the Islanders did sweep the Penguins in 2019. So in your opinion, you know, how do these teams differ from 2019 to 2021? And is this the Penguins' preferred matchup? for the first round in your opinion? Well, uh, I, I think just as far as the, how the teams differ, I mean, I, I think the Penguins are the much more different team out of the two. Um, you just look at that blue line. I mean, you know, back in 2019, I mean, you had you know, Jack Johnson and Justin Schultz, Eric Branson. Um, I don't know if Matt Hunt was part of that group or not yet uh, still, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's a very different blue line. Uh, I mean, you have a much quicker, you know, speedier blue line with Mike Matheson, Cody Ceci. Uh, Marcus Pedersen, John Marino on the bottom pair. So it's a much more mobile unit from the back end in that regard. Um, and uh, obviously you have a different goaltender too with you know, going from Matt Murray to Tristan Jari. But as far as the Islanders, I mean, just on the surface, I think the main difference there is just the goaltending. Um, you know, Robin Lehner had a career year there. Uh, with the one year he was with the Islanders winning the Vesna Trophy and everything like that. So um, it's maybe a little different there with Semyon Varlamov, who, who does have you know a fair amount of postseason experience, but I think there's maybe a little bit of a drop off from uh, what Lane, Robin Lehner was then in 2019. He was outstanding then to what Semyon Varlamov is right now, particularly just given the the, frust- the, the frustration he had against the Penguins this year, uh, losing to him so many times. So um, those are maybe the two biggest differences to me in terms of what we saw in 2019 to what we're maybe going to see here uh, starting on maybe on Sunday. Who knows? But um, and the other question was, uh, uh, I'm sorry, no, my yeah. if you think that that's their preferred matchup, the Penguins were kind of, I know you're not, you're not ever really trying to like lose or win games to set up a matchup, but I think if it falls that way, do you think the Penguins are pleased with avoiding the Bruins and the Capitals in the first round? Uh, yeah, maybe just from a physical standpoint. I mean, I, you know, I honestly, I mean, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic, but I, I think someone's going to be in the hospital, uh, that <laughs> Bruins capital series. I just see something stupid happening. Uh, just with you know, so many of the knuckleheads you have on both those teams, and not that the Islanders don't have a physical element. They they certainly do between you know, guys like Cal Clutterbuck and you know Matt Martin, Casey Zizekas. I mean, they they can you know ramp things up there too. But um, I, I you know I, I just don't see this being nearly as a physical or just grueling uh, of a matchup in terms of the attrition uh, that the Penguins might have faced if they had taken on Boston or, or Washington. So um, where I'm maybe concerned at from the Penguins' perspective is. Uh, for my money, Barry Trotz is the best coaching in NHL. And I say that with all due respect to Mike Sullivan, who might be number two on that list. Um, Barry Trotz is a coach who he can find your weaknesses. He can exploit your, uh, you know, any holes you might have in your armor. And, and he can, you know, take advantage of them. Now, he might need to, you know, five, six, seven games to kind of fully locate him and exploit them. But um, he's a guy that, you know, particularly with, you know, some the benefit of a week here, um, he can do some, you know, tape study and, and film study on the Penguins. You know, not that he's, you know, d- doesn't know what they maybe have after playing them eight times this year, but 
Um, he's a guy with a lot of time, a lot of benefit of preparation, can locate you know uh, weaknesses in your team and really try to find ways to exploit them. So um, in one sense, yes, I think the Penguins lucked out by getting a, a team that's not nearly as physical as those other two we mentioned. But at the same time, too, I, I think they're going against uh, uh, the best coach in the NHL who absolutely does have a pretty good track record against them over the past three years, three or four years. Right. I, I totally agree with that. I think you know the Penguins will take obviously going against the Islanders against uh, versus going against Boston or Washington in round one. Let those two teams beat each other up. I think um, the one point you made I thought was great about the defense and how it's so mobile now. The other point I thought too was the bottom six now for the Penguins seems to be much more um, much more deep. I guess um, is a good way to put it than they were in 2019 and really they've been in recent years. You look at Jared McCann and Jeff Carter. We'll talk about him in a minute, but. Um, he's been unbelievable since he came over from Los Angeles. Brandon Tanev getting healthy, and then you got Freddie Gaudreau and Zach Aston Reese, Teddy Bluger in the, the you know the fourth line role, or however you want to move those pieces around. I think that adds a lot of depth. And you mentioned Matt Martin and Casey Sezikis and um, Cal Clutterbuck for the New York Islanders. I'm not even sure. I, I saw their lines um, from like some of their uh, practices over the last couple of days, and I'm not sure if. Clutterbuck was even going to get he was taking any line rushes because I know they got Zajac and he looked like he was playing fourth line right wing so it'll be interesting to see them potentially not having that big bruise in fourth line that's so pivotal for them um, and you mentioned too like the the Penguins had a lot of success this year against the Islanders and with Varlamov in net maybe he's thinking about that I want to get your your take on the um, the the goal cage who you think has the edge there you know Tristan Jari being a guy that really hasn't um, had too much playoff experience yet and, you know, Varlamov, he's like you mentioned, he's not Robin Lanner. And they were a little bit deeper back with Lanner and Grice back in 2019, I think, in the, at the goaltending position. So who would you give the edge to, I guess, based on what you had mentioned before? And then just looking at how this season's played out. Um, I think I'd just go with Tristan Jari, just based on his accolades. I mean, he's a guy that's been an all-star, at least he was last last season. Uh, Semyon Varlamov, I don't believe he's ever had that that honor uh, for you know, for as long as he's been in the NHL. Um and, you, know, you look at this is a guy who's been with some pretty good teams here. Actually, I just I take that back. I look Semyon Varlamov was actually named an All Star in 2014. But um, but you I mean you look at a guy. This is a guy who's been with some really talented teams, and you know the Washington Capitals and the Colorado Avalanche over the years, and uh, just never seemed to really gain traction with them in terms of you know getting to the postseason and doing anything meaningful. And and I say that with all due respect, to what he did as a rookie back in. 2009 as a 20-year-old he came in and almost actually beat the penguins in the second round of that playoff series so um again i don't know we, we're still scratching the surface to see what tristan jari has as a playoff performer he's only played one game and that came last year in the bubble but um you know i, I just think tristan jari is just uh um based on how he's played this year or at least you know as the season wore on uh after a rough start i just think tristan jari gives them an edge in terms of uh quality of goaltending yeah, I would agree too. I, I think it's pretty they're pretty comparable, I would think, but I would give the edge to Jari uh, just based on him being a little younger and the, his more recent accolades, I guess, because you mentioned Varlamov was a 2014 All-Star. I think he was with the Avalanche then, if I'm not mistaken, if you if yeah. you still have that pulled up. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. We talked about the Penguins being successful against the Islanders this year. They won six of eight, including four out of four at PPG Paints Arena, where the first two games of the series will be as the Pens have home ice throughout at least the first two rounds. What what do you think or what do you attribute the success the Penguins had against the Islanders to this year, just based on some of the things you've discussed already, but just systemically, you know, how do you think they've um, been able to kind of exploit the and take advantage of the Islanders' system, their defensive style this year? 
I don't know. Honest, honest to God, I just don't know what exactly gave them such a resounding uh, advantage over them. Because I mean, I look at these Islanders. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty decent team from top to bottom. I, uh, I mean, I, I know you know Palmieri and Zach, Zajac joined the Islanders kind of late in the late in the, in the things here, and um, maybe weren't exactly part of the part of the games here uh, against the Penguins. But um, you know. You, See guys like Jean Gabriel Pajot, who I'm a big fan of, is a number three center. I mean, to me, that's just a prototypical number three center around the league. Guy you can clamp down on the opposition's top center, and just you know hope, expect him to you know kind of you know keep things buttoned down and things like that. So, um, I mean, if I if I just had to maybe guess off the top of my head, I would say maybe just talent. I, I don't think the Islanders have some of that upper tier top top end talent that the Penguins have with Sidney Crosby or Kenny Malkin when he's healthy or. Even you know, maybe a Jake Gensel, uh, uh, Crystal Tang. I just don't think the Islanders could go, you know, man for man uh, with the Penguins in terms of having some of those top tier talent. But um, in terms of depth, I mean, I, I would suggest the Islanders one of the deepest teams in, in the NHL. So uh, from from the first forward to the twelfth forward. So um, as far as you know, how what that you know manifested itself during the regular season, I'm just. I'm kind of lost for words there. I'll acknowledge it. Varlamov and uh, the other goaltender there, um, Ilya Sorokin, didn't necessarily maybe you know blow anyone's doors off in those games. But um, you know, like I said, just I look at this Islanders team and what they played with most of the season. I, I don't understand how they didn't perform better against the Penguins over eight games. Yeah, it's it was very surprising to me. Uh, the Islanders, just as a fan, Seth has have always kind of scared me in recent years, like just the way they play because they play such a defensive, responsible game. They're just waiting for you to make mistakes. And in the past couple of years, the Penguins have been the team that makes those mistakes against that team. So they're the ones that sometimes they refrain from dumping the puck in. They maybe try to dangle through the neutral zone and the Islanders will have four four guys across the blue line or the red line kind of just mucking it up a little bit in the neutral zone. So I'm hoping that the Penguins can kind of just stick to their game the way they've been playing the last you know six to eight weeks. And um, you know we'll see what happens there. You mentioned the depth. Um, of the Islanders, and I totally agree. Down the middle, for sure, they're very deep. But you look at the Penguins now, I think, with the acquisition of Jeff Carter. So you got Crosby, Malkin, Carter down the middle, and Teddy Bluger on the fourth line. It's some, you know, a, a pretty good combination of centers there, as good as anybody else in the NHL, I think. And with Jeff Carter, nine goals, two assists, and 14 games as a Penguin, pretty unbelievable what he's been able to do. So what does a guy like Carter you know, bring to the team for the playoffs? Uh, balance. I, I know that's kind of cliche answer there, but I mean, it, it gives them three lines that you can't just, uh, as an, an opposing player, you can't just, you know, focus on Sidney Crosby's line or if Guinea Malkin's line, presuming he's healthy. I mean, you kind of have to account for that, you know, Carter line. I mean, you look at the game laid out on, uh, this past Thursday, the four goal game against Buffalo. And you know, I thought the Sabres did a fairly decent job, uh, um, you know, in terms of, you know, maybe, somewhat limiting Crosby and Malkin in that game. Both those guys, you know, got some points in that game, but um, they really didn't have an answer for anyone that could, you know, account for Jeff Carter as well as Jared, Jared McCann and Freddie Goudreau. So, um, you know, when you have that type of depth, I mean, that just makes it such a difficult matchup uh, situation for the opposing team. And um, they can't just focus on the one guy. They kind of have to kind of, you know, be on their toes a little bit more in terms of, Shuffling their line, shuffling their defensive pairings, and that's a very—it's even more difficult when you're the road team and you don't get the benefit of matchups or, or the last change uh, before a faceoff. So um, I don't know if it's an exact replica of what they had with, uh, um, say, uh, uh, HBK back in 2016 and 2017. Um, it, it strikes me as maybe a little bit more of a different dynamic 
from that from those teams to what they have here with Jeff Carter. But I think the overall premise is the same. It's just that um, if you have, if you can get three lines or if you can get four lines, I mean, let's not discount what guys like Teddy Bluger and Brandon Tanev and Zach Aston-Reese can do. If you get three or four lines going for you, you're just a, a, a matchup nightmare for the opposition. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I totally agree with that. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing what he can bring. He brings a lot of experience. He's won Stanley Cups, gold medals. I mean, he's a hell of a player. So uh, I never dreamed that he would <laughs> he would have nine goals in 14 games. I know you mentioned his four goal game and Bob Airy kind of pumped his tires a little bit. I think on TV, I don't know if you saw that, but he mentioned he was like six goals away from 400 and they were kind of joking him and Steve Mears, the announcers were joking a little bit about potentially him getting 400 with like three games to go. And he got pretty close. He's at 399. So you got to figure he'll get that next year. Um, I'd be remiss too before you know we we get into your prediction here on the series. But if I didn't mention your awesome article you wrote last week on uh, Jim Rutherford and kind of I was fascinated by it by like how he he says he hasn't missed a Penguins game uh, this year. You know after he left and everything, that's pretty crazy to me. And he still gets a little bit nervous before games. I feel like and you you obviously talked to him, so I'd like to get your your thoughts on it. But I feel like he probably still has. Um, a vested interest and still feels like you know he had a hand in their success a little bit although they weren't playing as well as they are recently whenever he was you know, right before he departed the team but um, just what's your you know because he, he did acquire Cody Ceci and Mike Matheson those guys have been great this year for the Penguins a lot of a lot of uh, you know negativity is from fans and some other people in the media and things like that you know whenever they signed those guys or acquired those guys so he did have a big hand in my opinion I, I just wonder what you make of the way the pens have been playing and what you know kind of touch on that article a little bit and what you took away from that conversation uh as far as Jim Rutherford's concerned I think he's just maybe biding his time until his contract's up and he can see what's maybe available for him uh if he were to maybe go somewhere else as maybe a consultant or maybe like a you know a president of hockey operations, maybe a position similar to what Brian Burke has with the Penguins now. Uh, so he seems like he's biding his time to see what's out there. If not, you know, he's, he's at an age at 72 and he's financially secure enough where he can maybe just, you know, you know retire at, at this stage and just kind of enjoy his personal life with his family and things like that. So um, he seems very like he's very content, uh, uh, albeit that he would like to have something maybe a little bit more to do with hockey uh, than, he would, than what he has right now. So, um, and as far as uh, the composition of the team, I mean, you know, you mentioned the two big ones there with Matheson and CC. They weren't exactly popular moves at the time, but they've turned out wonderfully in terms of giving the Penguins a, a fantastic second defensive pairing. Um, Kasperi Kapanen, you know, even with some hiccups here with his, you know, his visa status and an injury situation, um, things have worked out pretty well for him. And it seems like they found a, a viable line mate for him with uh uh, or viable line mate for Evgeny Malkin with Kasperi Kapan in there. So it seems like that's been a pretty good match. Um, even some of the under radar ones. I mean, Freddie Goudreau, I mean, it was a guy they just, they kind of maybe anticipated him just being a guy that they looked to whenever they had some injuries up front, they called him up from Wilkes-Barre and he would step in the line, and, you know, play a good solid eight, nine minutes for him. But he's turned out to be maybe a little bit more than that. So, and you know, I know guys, you know, everyone wants, wants to beat up on like Mark Jankowski or Colton Skevier and, you know, they've, not that may have been nothing great, but I mean, you're looking at this lineup right now. And when you include Evan Rodriguez too, they brought him back as well. That's a pretty good quote unquote fifth line. Uh, those, those three guys there. So uh, God forbid someone gets injured out of the top 12 there. I mean, that's, those are three pretty decent options you can turn to. Um, you know, if you go on a long playoff run, you're bound to be missing some players, particularly with everything related, you know, in the COVID-19 pandemic and everything like that, you might be missing players for, 
other reasons as well. So, um, no, they've this team was built up pretty well in terms of the depth uh, that Jim Rutherford accrued, um, you know, in the offseason here. And then you, when, with Ron Hextall, he adds, you know, uh, Jeff Carter, who, you know, as we mentioned, has been a revelation. And um, even to a lesser extent, Mark Friedman shown some things too as well and has some versatility of being able to play left side, right side. So um, this is a very, very deep roster. And, you know, the bulk of that, you pray should go to Jim Rutherford with as well as, you know, Ron Hextall for maintaining it and, you know, supplement it with, supplementing it with uh, Jeff Carter and Mark Friedman. But, um, uh, no, this is a, a remarkably deep roster that the Penguins will be entering the postseason with. Yeah, I agree. I think it's one of the most deep teams they've had in recent memory. And I know you're in limited time, so I appreciate you taking the taking the time. I just had to, before I get to your, your prediction on the series, I just wanted to ask if you knew anything like why, um, or what your opinion is regarding you mentioned you know Friedman and Ruedel got in a couple games near the end of the season you know what's uh, what's the status on Yuso Rikula is he is he just you know because I figured he would get some time I mean he's a good depth yeah. defenseman but I I was just surprised that especially in I don't want to call them meaningless games but you know with, against Buffalo they probably could have thrown him in and get him some reps I'm not really even sure when's the last time he played but if you had any insight there I think in that specific instance um, he was on the taxi squad uh, for the last two or three weeks of the season after the trade deadline. Mm -hmm. And they had to put him on there because of Evgeny Malkin coming off long-term injured reserve. And uh, they stuck Yusuf Rikula on uh, the taxi squad. And that saved them something like um, most of his salary. It was like 75% of his salary, which I think he ended up meaning like for the last three or four weeks, he only accounted for like 75 grand or some fairly minor number by NHL standards against their salary cap. So I, not that he was a threat to get back in the lineup anytime soon, but I think the reason he was on the taxi squad was more based on the salary cap maneuvering with Evgeny Malkin coming back. Um, as far as where he is with the organization, I, I have a hard time seeing him be a part, be here over, you know, after past this off season. Uh, not that there would be a great demand for, you know, other teams wanting to sign him or trade for him or whatever, but he's got one more year left on his deal at, you know, 1.15, I think if I'm remembering it correctly. Yeah, I think that's head, correct. So. Yeah. Um, I would anticipate he's someone that maybe gets exposed in the expansion draft. I'm not sure the Seattle Kraken would want him, but um, it just it, just given where management is now, uh, um, I don't know if there's any loyalty or appreciation for him uh, uh, by Ron Hextall or Brian Burke, uh, quite the same way there was under Jim Rutherford. But um, it just seems like an unnecessary expense for a team that is going to have a flat salary cap figure going into next year. Uh, on top of that, too, you have John Marino entering the, the first year of his new contract that's going to be, I think, $4 million or something like that. So um, if they can find some way to get Yusuf Rikula's contract, most of it off the books, uh, I, I think management would be happy to do that. But um, as far as why he fell out of favor with management, I just don't know that he ever totally enamored Mike Sullivan. And um, I don't know if there's anything he was doing, you know, specifically that didn't enamor Mike Sullivan, but. Um, again, just someone who just never really had Mike Sullivan's, uh, you know, you know, eye, I guess, quite the same way some other players did. So, um, it was a worthwhile experiment, but, uh, I think it's time's going to be coming to an end here, uh, whenever the Penguin season comes to an end. Right. It'll be an interesting off season. I think it, you know, he's shown flashes at times, uh, you know, playing pretty well, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think he ever really kind of got under the, uh, you know, got in with Mike Sullivan and kind of earned the trust of Mike Sullivan. But again, I'm just looking at it from afar. Um, your predictions for the Penguins Islanders series, and I'll give you the the Capitals and Bruins series. What do you think um, the the winner of those two series are going to be? 
Well, I'm going to say Penguins in six, but the last time I said that was 2019 and the Islanders <laughs> sweeping them. So Knock on uh, <laughs> take, take, take my you know, predictions for as you will there. And then as far as the other series, oh, I just I, I would say probably uh, Bruins in seven. I just think they have a, a substantial edge in terms of uh, uh, the goaltending there. I'll take Tuka Rask any day over um, uh, the, the Samsonov and Vanasek, the goalies there in Washington. I haven't been impressed by them whatsoever. Uh, in terms of seeing them head to head with the Penguins, um, uh, that said, I think Washington is actually a much deeper team uh, in terms of you know the forward depth and defensive depth than the Bruins. But I just think it comes back back to goaltending there with Tuukka Rask and uh, all his wonderful abilities, uh, giving the Bruins a substantial edge, albeit in a seven game series uh, against the Washington Capitals. I agree, and for the Bruins, just real quick, I think they're. Like Taylor Hall's that acquisition is similar to Jeff Carter. He's been kind of like night and day from what he was in Buffalo, and you have to figure he got a lot of juice just kind of like going to a contender. You know, he'd been on that just a horrible season in Buffalo. You kind of feel for those guys. It just nothing went right up there. But um, I agree. I, I have both those picks too. Uh, just as far as the Penguins getting the, getting the win, um, I think it'll be six games as well. It might even go seven. I think just based on their style, we talked about. You know, it, it's going to be a long, drawn-out series and a tough series. Maybe not as physical, like you said, as a as a series would be against Boston or uh, Washington. But I think the Bruins will beat the Capitals as well. But I really appreciate the insight and the time. I know you're a busy man coming up here with the playoffs, so I can't thank you enough. I think the listeners are really going to enjoy this, and I uh, hope to have you back soon. I appreciate it, Tim. Anytime, man. All right. Thanks, Seth. I really hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Seth Rorabal. I can't thank him enough. Um, what a guy. Uh, if you want to follow Seth on Twitter, at Seth Rorabal. I talked about it last time he was on. I would definitely advise you following him if you're a hockey fan or if you're a Pittsburgh Penguins fan. He's got a unique style. Uh, definitely brings um, some insight to the game for sure. And I like following him during the games and even after the games with some of his insight. Uh, so I would definitely advise you doing that. And I can't thank him enough for coming on the Rambling Brews podcast and breaking down the Islanders and the Penguins first round series. I did want to give my official prediction. I know I talked about it in the uh, conversation with Seth, but I do believe the Pittsburgh Penguins will win this series. I think they're too deep right now for the uh, New York Islanders, especially with the Islanders missing their captain, Anders Lee, a big body in front of the net. He takes away a lot of what the Islanders do well offensively, and there's not a lot that they do well offensively, honestly. I mean, they've got Matt Barzell. He can score. He's electric. He can take over the game. You kind of just got to limit his chances, but I know they keep the puck out of their net. That's their game. That's how they play. They're always at the top of team save percentage for their goaltenders and everything, but they really just can't score. Um, I think if the Penguins can play smart, chip the puck in deep, don't play into their system, uh, don't try to dangle too much through the neutral zone. I don't want to limit their creativity, but you don't want to feed the odd man rushes. That's really what happened to them in 2019. They left Matt Murray out to dry, and the same thing will happen this year to Tristan Jari if they play that way. So I think they're too deep. I think they're too smart. Um, Mike Sullivan is not going to let that happen. And I see the Pittsburgh Penguins winning this series in six games. It's going to be a a tough uh, road up in Nassau Coliseum. It's one of the best barns in the NHL, and they're going to have fans back, at least some fans. I saw a map on uh, 
Twitter that there, half the arena is going to be people that haven't been vaccinated. They're going to be socially distanced. And then the other half of the arena is going to be people that have been vaccinated. I don't know if they're going to be socially distanced. I'm not sure. Um, I don't want to get into all that shit about the CDC and stuff, but I'm just talking, you know, what I saw today. So it's always a raucous barn to play in for the Penguins, and they've notoriously struggled up there in the Crosby era. So uh, we'll see what happens. But I think the Islanders can probably win one or two games on home ice, but uh, I don't see the Penguins losing at home. I think they close this one out in six games. So swig of beer for Sidney Crosby, swig of beer for the Pittsburgh Penguins, and swig of beer for the Penguins, hopefully moving on to the second round. If the Penguins do move on to the second round, they'll play the winner of this series, which is the number two-seeded Washington Capitals versus the number three-seeded Boston Bruins. These two teams, I don't believe, have played each other since 2012 in the playoffs. Uh, Just two perennial powerhouse teams, always in the mix. Um, The head-to-head matchup this year, the Washington Capitals were four wins, four losses, no overtime losses. The Boston Bruins were four wins, two losses, two overtime losses. So very even. Uh, Boston picked up two loser points. Um, both teams have been very, very solid this year. Just kind of what you would expect. I know at the beginning of the season, in one of the initial episodes of this podcast, I mentioned I didn't think the Washington Capitals would make the playoffs. And I mean, boy, do I look stupid now because they were the two seed and could have easily won the division if it weren't for a resurgence from the Penguins and maybe a little bit of a slide late in the season. But they're a damn good team. And, um, so are the Boston Bruins, and both teams were active at the trade deadline as they usually are. You had the Washington Capitals go out and get Anthony Mantha for Jakob Vrana, um, and then the Boston Bruins they went out and got Taylor Hall. They went out and got that piece they needed, that left winger on the second line with David Krejci, and he's playing with Craig Smith. Uh, been one of the better second lines in hockey since he came over, and Taylor Hall, man, he's been a godsend for them as well. He's got points in eleven of his sixteen games as a Bruin. Um, He's just he's electric. You never you never knew what you were gonna get from him. I think sometimes he has he shows flashes that he's one of the best players in the NHL, and then other times he he kind of disappears a little bit like he did in Buffalo. Honestly, everybody disappeared in Buffalo. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But man, what a pickup for them. Um, similar to Jeff Carter that Seth uh, Seth Roraba and I talked about with the Penguins, just great deadline acquisitions. And even for the Capitals, Anthony Mantha, he's been pretty good. He's a big body. He adds a lot of toughness to a team that's already very physical and tough. He can score, so I look for this to be a hell of a series. Um, Some game breakers for the Boston Bruins, Brad Marchand. I was actually blown away by this stat. No one in the NHL has more playoff points in the last five years than Brad Marchand. And he had seven goals and six assists in seven games versus the Capitals this year. Got to figure that top line is going to generate. You got Patrice Bergeron. Brad Marchand, David Pasternak. It's going to be hard for the Washington Capitals to keep them off the score sheet. As I mentioned, Marchand had 13 points in seven games, almost two points a game this year against the Capitals. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I look for that team, that line to, to really light it up. And I talked about Taylor Hall with David Krejci and Craig Smith. So the top six for the Bruins is very, very strong uh, matching up against the Capitals top six. But obviously the game breakers for the Capitals, you got to look out for the grade eight, Alex Ovechkin. Uh, pretty remarkable that this was the first year in his NHL career where he did not eclipse the 30-goal mark. Just let me tell you that one more time. In this era, the first year, he came in the league in 05-06. This is the first year Alex Ovechkin did not get more than 30 goals in a season. I'm not sure people realize how difficult it is to get 30 goals in an NHL season. Like It doesn't seem like a lot because you see guys like Ovechkin putting up 50, 60. You see Stamkos 60. You see NHL records from the past with... Uh, 
you know, Lemieux at 85 and uh, Gretzky at 92 and just ridiculous numbers. But 30 goals, especially today, is a lot of damn goals. So pretty remarkable that Ovechkin didn't do it and probably only because he was injured. I think he missed 10 or 11 games. He still had 24 goals this year. Um, but he's notoriously a, a great goal scorer in the postseason. And he appears to be 100% coming into the playoffs after missing those 10 games this year. And look out if you're a Boston Bruins fan uh, because Alex Ovechkin can really light the, light the lamp, as we all know, and he can really get that team going. And the one thing I think hurts the Capitals from a top six perspective, and we'll talk about it in a little bit about the uh, COVID protocol, but uh, Evgeny Kuznetsov, he's had some issues with the organization we'll dive into, but he appears to not be available to start the series. Um, he's on the, this is day 10, I think, when I'm recording this. This is day 10 of his COVID protocol being out for, I think, a violation of COVID protocol again, which will be his second one this year. And he's kind of fallen out of favor with the organization. And we'll see if he's able to draw back in the lineup. And TJ Oshie, he was banged up a little bit um, the last couple games, but I think he's going to be good to go. Uh, so it's a big blow to their depth to not have Evgeny Kuznetsov as their second line centerman. And I think that's a big advantage for the Boston Bruins and Tom Wilson. I know we talked about him a lot. I think this is going to be a very physical series. Uh, Seth pointed it out in the conversation I had about the Pens and Islanders that when we talked about the Bruins and Capitals, you know, that there's a lot of knuckleheads on these two teams and there's going to be some fireworks. I'm sure there's going to be some fights and some physicality. And it's going to be a great series to watch again, if you're a hockey fan or a French hockey fan or not really into hockey or just checking it out for the first time or just listening to this podcast for the first time, I would definitely recommend checking out all these series for sure. But definitely, if you want to see some some fisticuffs and some physicality and some you know awesome hockey, I would watch this Capitals-Bruins series. Um, another cool thing about this series is Zdeno Chara. Uh, he came over to the Washington Capitals this year as a free agent. He played 14 seasons in Boston, 150 playoff games, won a Stanley Cup there, and now he's matching up against his old club. He's not what he once was. He's not going to play against the top line every shift, but he'll get out there on the penalty kill, and I'm sure he'll get some uh, matchups against the Marchand and Bergeron and Pasternak line, and we'll see how it goes. It's going to be pretty interesting to see how that plays out. And in goal, you've got to give the big edge to Tuka Rask, if, you're, if you ask me, for the Boston Bruins. Uh, he was injured this year a little bit, but he finished the season his last eight games. He was 7-1-0. and um, And Vitek Vanasek, the goaltender for the Washington Capitals, he's a rookie with no playoff experience. He was 21-10-4 this year. I talked about him on an earlier episode for potentially being up for the Calder Trophy. He had a great season, but, I mean, you're asking a lot for a rookie goaltender to go in there um, and play against the Boston Bruins, a deep veteran team. And we'll see how it goes. And Ilya Samsonov, he's another goaltender that could play. He's a rookie as well, but he's also on the COVID protocol. He's got a little bit of an issue, kind of like uh, Evgeny Kuznetsov does with the organization. So we'll see. And, uh, you know, the last thing I want to mention on this this series is the Washington Capitals. Their bread and butter is their power play. They're 24.8%. That's third best in the league. Uh, that's basically been right about where they're hovering every year since Ovechkin came into the league. They're dominant on the power play. And I just don't understand how like Ovechkin just stands in the office. Like looks like his controller disconnected on PS4 or Xbox because he just stands there. He doesn't move, but then you just put the puck in his wheelhouse and it's bar in every fucking time. Um, it's just unbelievable. But the Boston Bruins are second on the penalty kill at 86%, one of the best in the league. So it's going to be pretty awesome to watch that match up. And then on the flip side, the Boston Bruins were ninth in power play percentage at 21.9%. Very, very respectable number. And, uh, the Capitals are 86% as well on the PK. So right there, I mean, it's going to be a very, very um, 
you know, tight matchup from a special teams perspective, and we'll see who has the edge. But I think with the goaltending and with Kuznetsov not playing a little bit of the depth issues, um, it's going to be very tough for the Washington Capitals to knock off the Boston Bruins. I have the Boston Bruins winning this series in six games. So swig of beer for the Bruins. And I'm a, I'll am say it, I think the Penguins are going to win the series, as I mentioned, against the Islanders, and the Bruins are going to win this series. I feel a little bit better about the Penguins playing the Bruins in the second round than playing them in the first round, if that makes sense. Because if you remember, the Penguins have only won, I believe, one playoff game since they lost that series against the Capitals in 2018 on the Caps' uh, route to the Stanley Cup. And that's one playoff game. So they really got to get you know a playoff series win under their belt, build their confidence a little bit. I think they can do it. They're a very, very good team. But uh, I think if they drew the Boston Bruins in round one, I think they might have lost. The Bruins are in their head, but I think if the Penguins can build some confidence, I look for the Penguins to have some success against Boston in the second round. I feel better about it anyway, but I'm going to take a swig of beer for the East Division playoffs. And last but not least, we'll talk about the West Division. The Colorado Avalanche clinched the division and clinched the number one seed in the NHL. They win the President's Trophy, the best record in the league. Uh, they'll match up against the number four seeded St. Louis Blues. The Avalanche were five and three against the Blues this year. The Blues three and five. No loser points. No overtime points for either team. Ryan O'Reilly, he's the captain of the St. Louis Blues, and he actually used to play for the Colorado Avalanche. He's pretty close with guys like Nathan McKinnon and Gabriel Landeskog on the Avalanche team. They're good buddies, but he came out and basically said, you know what, we know they got a lot of skill on that side, and we're going to win this series. We're going to play well. We know how to play. We know how to beat them, and we're going to win this series. So it's pretty crazy for him to say that. But uh, the game breakers for the Avalanche, I mentioned, Nathan McKinnon, 14 points in eight games against the Blues this year. He had 65 points on the season. Just one of the best players in the NHL. One of the most electric players to watch. One of my favorite players in all of the league for sure. The pride of Cole Harbor, Nova Scotia, him and Sidney Crosby. Um, Kale McCarr, the defenseman on the blue line for the Avalanche, just unbelievable. 10 points in eight games against the Blues this year. Um, he might win the Norris Trophy. He wasn't in one of my finalists um, that I mentioned last week, but he might very well win the Norris Trophy. I know he missed about a month of the season, so that might hold him back, but man, this kid is just an absolute stud. Um, Gabriel Landeskog, the captain of the Avalanche, I mentioned him being a friend of Ryan O'Reilly. He's an unbelievable player. Nine points in eight games this year against the Blues. Not exactly the most productive guy on the team, but he just brings so many intangibles. He's just a great player, a great face-off player, a good penalty killer, uh, just an overall outstanding leader for the Avalanche. And he really is a, a pivotal part of that team and their success. So, um, you know, I can't wait to see what he does against the Blues. And then Mika Rantanen, we've talked about him on previous episodes. He only had, uh, you know, a couple points against the Blues this year. He struggled a little bit, but overall he had 66 points on the season. He led the team. He had one more point than McKinnon. He's one of the best players in the National Hockey League. Um, and I think he can definitely go for, you know, 10, 12 points in this first round series. It's going to be unbelievable to watch. You've got Nathan McKinnon, Gabriel Landeskog, and Mika Rantanen, the three guys I mentioned pretty much outside of McCarr on the blue line. But those three guys play on the same line and they play on the top power play. It's going to be very difficult to stop those guys. Um, if you're the St. Louis Blues, you're looking at your game breakers. Ryan O'Reilly, I mentioned, he had 54 points this year. Uh, David Perron, 58 points this year. We talked about him on an episode with Ray earlier where he's bounced around from team to team. He's been on the Blues. I think this is his third time he's been on the Blues. Um, pretty crazy, but he's had an outstanding season. Like I said, 58 points. Uh, Braden Shen, 
36 points. He's more of a depth guy. He can add a lot of grit. He's a, a physical player, but he can score. He's a pretty good player on the power play and a really, really good checking forward. And then Mike Hoffman, just a pure shooter. Um, a little bit of a down year for him. He only had 36 points on the season, um, but he's just a pure goal scorer, and I look for him to pretty much light the lamp in the in the playoffs here. If the St. Louis Blues have any chance of winning this series, they need Mike Hoffman to step up and really live up to his name. Um, in the goal crease, you got to give the edge to Colorado. I mean, Philip Grubauer, he was a backup for Braden Holpe many years ago with the uh, Washington Capitals, and he went over to Colorado, and this year he had 30 wins, 9 losses, and 1 overtime loss, a 1.95 goals against the average, and a .922 save percentage. So really, really outstanding numbers. I wouldn't be surprised if he's right there as, as a finalist for the Vezina Trophy, the best goaltender in the NHL. And if you remember back to at the uh, trade deadline, the Colorado Avalanche, they added Devin Dubnik, a veteran goaltender. He was playing in San Jose before this, but he spent a lot of time in Edmonton and Minnesota. Um, a really, really good depth goaltender. Um, he only played five games with the Avalanche because obviously with Grubauer playing unbelievable, Dubnik's not going to get the cage. And um, it really adds a lot of depth for them because if Grubauer does stumble a little bit in the playoffs, whether it be in this round or in future rounds, you know, it's possible that Dubnik goes in and really saves the day. And they got, uh, they've got they got one of the best goaltending tandems in the league. So I look for that to be a strength throughout the entire duration of the playoffs. If you pivot over to the St. Louis Blues, I mean, Jordan Bennington, he's a great goaltender. Um, he had an outstanding breakout year when they won the Stanley Cup in 2019. And, you know, really, he's been decent ever since. He got a big contract. I'm not sure he's quite lived up to it. Uh, from a Blues fans perspective or even the organization I think they don't think he might play a little bit better than he has but he's 18 14 and 8 this year he's got a 1.65 goals against the average which is really good and a .910 save percentage which is pretty average but he's been solid and he can definitely steal some games and I think he can make some noise in this playoff series but you know it's pretty crazy because you know if you're a St. Louis fan you got to be upset that you drew the Avalanche. I mean, they're looking to bounce back and get revenge after a horrible offside call in Game 7 last year where Gabriel Landeskog was basically trying to change against the Dallas Stars in Game 7 last year in the second round. He was trying to make a change. He's in the offensive zone. He's standing in the, you know, in the zone. He's in the zone, but it's pretty crazy because like a player has already changed for him. So the way the NHL works, a player changed for him, so now Landis Cog's no longer involved in the play. He might be on the ice, but he's just making a change. And he always mentioned, you know, the gate was a little bit stuck. He couldn't get off the ice quick enough, and the Avalanche went on to score a goal, which would have led potentially to them win the game. And it got called for offside on a challenge because Landis Cog was trying to get off. He wasn't off the ice in time. and Just a pretty much a dog shit call. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth on that call, you know, just from media and from the Avalanche players and people just analyzing that whole series. And it was really an unfortunate call for the Avalanche. I think they were the better team last year than the Dallas Stars, and they probably potentially would have won the Stanley Cup or would have been a much better uh, matchup against the Tampa Bay Lightning than the Dallas Stars were. But, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate for the St. Louis Blues, you know, they're matching up against the Avalanche, and I think the Avalanche are a buzzsaw. So I think the Avalanche win this series in five games. I wouldn't be surprised if it goes four games, but you know the Avalanche are just that damn good, and the Blues they're just not. They don't have what it takes anymore, in my opinion. So I think the Avalanche again win this in five games. Uh, that brings me to the other series in the West Division. You got the Vegas Golden Knights, who just barely missed out. Uh, they had the same number of points as the Avalanche, but they don't win the President's Trophy based on regulation wins. 
Uh, but they get the two seed, the Vegas Golden Knights. They're going to match up against the Minnesota Wild, who are the three seed. And it's really the worst possible first-round matchup if you're Vegas. I mean, Vegas won 40 out of 56 games this year. Flurry and Robin Leonard, the two goaltenders for the Vegas Golden Knights, they won the Jennings Trophy this year for the least amount of goals allowed in a season. So they've had an unbelievable season. And it's unfortunate because the Vegas Golden Knights, they draw the Minnesota Wild. They couldn't hold off the Avalanche. I mentioned the Avalanche won the West Division. They won the President's Trophy, best record in the NHL. And Vegas, they really, really struggled against the Minnesota Wild this year. They went 3-4-1. and one. Um, The Minnesota Wild, they just had their number. I mean, Vegas is 2-6 and six all-time in Minnesota at the XL Energy Center. And they've never won a game in regulation there. That's a big, big deal if you ask me. I know Vegas is going to have potentially four home games, but you got to figure if if Minnesota can steal one on the road, they've got a good chance to win this series. The game breakers for the Vegas Golden Knights, you got Mark Stone, their captain, 61 points in 55 games. Max Pacioretty, 51 points in 48 games. They've got Alex Petrangelo on the blue line. They're very, very deep, just a loaded team. And then Minnesota, their game breakers, they've got rookie Kirill Kaprizov, 51 points in 55 games. We talked about him at nauseum over the last couple episodes. Uh, Kevin Fiala, just a breakout year, 40 points in 55 games. It might not mean a lot to you, but he's been really, really good and added a lot of depth scoring for the Minnesota Wild. And they really do it by committee. They've got a lot of depth. They've got a very uh, team-oriented style. And I could see them definitely making some noise and, and, and giving Vegas a lot of problems in this first-round series. And the one thing that's crazy is in goal, you got to give the edge to Vegas. Like I mentioned, you know, uh, Flurry and Robin Leonard won the Jennings Trophy. They've given up the least amount of goals in the NHL. They give up 2.38 goals per game as a team. But against Minnesota this year, they've given up three goals a game. So Minnesota has found a way to score against Vegas and you know, it's going to be an unbelievable series, but I think in a best of seven series, the depth for the Vegas Golden Knights and the level of talent that Vegas has will overwhelm the the Wild. And, you know, I'm really just hoping for a Vegas-Colorado round two series. It's going to be an unbelievable series. It might be the best series in all the playoffs. So I've got the Vegas Golden Knights in seven games, and they're going to match up with the Colorado Avalanche in the next round. So I cannot wait to see that happen. And those are the NHL playoffs, first round series previews and swig of beer for the NHL playoffs, swig of beer for those previews and swig of beer for me becoming like an actual analyst right now. (laughs) I mentioned in the intro, I did want to pivot over and talk about some stories from the NHL outside of the playoffs. For the Washington Capitals, I talked about Evgeny Kuznetsov. The organization appears to be very, very irritated with Evgeny Kuznetsov. Uh, He's been on the COVID protocol list twice this year, at least one time for violating the protocol we talked about on an earlier episode where he was hanging out with teammates without a mask in a hotel room and the Capitals were fined 100 grand and uh, some of his teammates, including Alex Ovechkin and Ilya Samsonov and Dmitry Orlov, were suspended by the team. Um, He just seems to be a little bit lazy and uninterested at times. I'm not really sure what's going on you know, in his head and what he's thinking right now. I mean, he got a big contract and maybe he's just thinking, you know, he's got his Stanley Cup and he's thinking he's not going to, he's not really invested in the team anymore. I know a lot of the guys in the organization are very upset with Kuznetsov. And on top of the COVID violation for Kuznetsov, I mean, he was suspended in 2019 for three games for, quote, inappropriate conduct. 
Uh, I'm not exactly sure what incident led to that three-game suspension. I know he had an incident where he was caught on camera by somebody that took a picture of him in a hotel room with what looked to be cocaine on a table, and he had some women there and stuff like that. Um, I know the NHL, I don't believe they test for cocaine, and they don't consider it a performance-enhancing drug. Um, so that's all they really care about is the performance-enhancing drugs. So that might have been what he got suspended for, for maybe putting himself in that situation, allegedly. I want to make sure I say allegedly um, because I'm not saying he did it or didn't do it, but I think that might be what it was. Also, he received a four-year suspension from the International Ice Hockey Federation for a failed drug test. Um, so he's out for four years. So he's got a little bit of baggage off the ice. And like I said, he signed a big contract. He's got a four years left on his deal. Uh, it's $7.8 million per year. He's got a modified no-trade clause, um, which means he submits a number of teams to the Capitals each year or whenever they request it of a number of teams he will not be traded to. So he somewhat controls his destiny. Uh, you got to figure with everything that's going on and all the reports coming out of Washington, how they're upset with him and the organization kind of wants to move on. Um, they're going to figure out a way to move him this summer, I would bet. Um, would the Seattle Kraken, the new expansion team, take him? I'm not sure. Because, like, what are the Capitals going to get back? Are they willing to deal him and just to get rid of the cap and get some draft equity back? Uh, I'm not sure. Or maybe they try to get Kuznetsov to waive his no-trade clause so that Seattle takes him. If they really want to get rid of him that bad, they don't want any assets back for him. Remember, he's still a pretty damn good player. Uh, but he's making 7.8 sheets over the next four years. Um, each year for the next four years, I should say. Um, so I, I think the Capitals will want to get something for him. And I think you know a team will probably likely give the Capitals something for him. I don't think they'll let the uh, Kraken take him for nothing. So even if it's a draft pick or something like that, I, I think the Capitals can get some talent or, or get some sort of asset for Kuznetsov. But it appears his days in Washington are numbered. Um, so that's a pretty big development. Uh, also, some there were some coach firings. I talked about some coaches getting shit-canned in the NHL. David Quinn um, and all of his staff for the New York Rangers, they got fired. It's pretty crazy after that whole debacle with Tom Wilson I talked about last week, and I didn't really want to get into the fallout. I mean, there were fights right off the draw in the next game, and there was six fights in the first five minutes and all that stuff you would expect to happen when the league really didn't uh, punish Tom Wilson at all and really didn't stand up for the New York Rangers players. And... um you know, seemingly right around that same time, uh, James Dolan fired the general manager and the president of hockey operations for the New York Rangers. He appointed Chris Drury, who I've talked about before, whenever the Penguins were searching for a general manager, that he's one of the top candidate um, assistant general managers in the NHL. He's now got the uh, job of general manager and president of hockey operations for the New York Rangers. And he went ahead and fired their coach, David Quinn, who came over a couple years ago um, after being at BU for a long time, Boston University uh, for college hockey. A lot of success there, a very well-respected coach. So I think he'll land on his feet somewhere else. Um, New York's just a very tough job. Um, John Tortorella, <laughs> my buddy Ray and I on a couple episodes, we pretty much took him to task for everything. And uh, he's uh, agreed to part ways with the Columbus Blue Jackets organization and their general manager, Yarmo Kekalainen. So he's going to be looking for uh, a new job there. And I wouldn't be surprised. A lot of people are pointing at New York. He can go back to New York. He was there for a while, and maybe he goes back. I'm not sure. Uh, also, Rick Tockett in Arizona. He was a Penguins assistant coach in 2016 and 2017. Won uh, two Stanley Cups with the Penguins. He also won a couple Stanley Cups with the Pittsburgh Penguins as a player. Just an unbelievable guy. One of the best guys in the NHL. Guys love playing for him. It was a very difficult job out in Arizona, if you ask me. I mean, they had some issues where they lost draft picks due to some violations at the draft combine. 
a couple of years ago. Um, they, they've just kind of been a, an organization that's just not really built to win. They take a lot of contracts and try to acquire draft picks from other teams that maybe you're looking to move guys out. And it, it's not necessarily a recipe for success. It's very difficult, I think, to win out in uh, Arizona because their arena is just not in Scottsdale. It's not in a nice area. It's like way out in Phoenix right by kind of where the uh, Arizona Cardinals play. And they've always had a lot of trouble kind of getting free agents and they really haven't been able to do too much damage in the playoffs. They had a couple runs there. And I think 2012 when they got swept, I believe they got swept by the LA Kings when the LA Kings went on to win the Stanley cup, but they really just haven't been an organization, a destination organization for sure for free agents to go there. And it's difficult to win there. So you feel for Rick talking, but I think he'll bounce back on his feet. And I know uh, the New York Rangers now with their coaching vacancy, They've asked to interview Vegas Golden Knights coach that was fired, Gerard Gallant, which is still crazy to me. So like that whole process, so you get shit canned by your team, right? So in this case, Gerard Gallant got fired by the Vegas Golden Knights and they brought in Peter DeBoer, the old San Jose Sharks coach. And it's pretty crazy because he's fired. They fucking canned his ass, Gerard Gallant. But since he's under contract, they're still paying him. So they still have his rights. So any team that would want to hire him has to get permission from the Vegas Golden Knights first. Now, I don't know any case where the team wouldn't give permission because they'd love to that guy get a job and then they're off the hook and they don't have to pay his salary anymore <laughs> from his previous contract. But just pretty crazy. You can get fired from a team and then that team still kind of controls your destiny. Pretty crazy, but I know the Rangers have interviewed him or they have at least asked to interview him. I mentioned uh, John Tortorella's link to the New York Rangers and I could see Rick Tocca potentially as well. So, uh, also with Rod Brendamore, I talked about earlier on the episode, he hasn't officially signed his deal yet. And there's a lot of rumors thrown that the New York Rangers could be waiting until the playoffs are over to see if there's any, uh, thing they can kick the tires on Rod Brendamore and potentially get him to New York. And I think that would be a huge get for the New York Rangers if they could, but I still don't see Brendamore leaving Carolina, but a lot of coaching vacancies, and I'm sure there'll be more to come as the season winds down here and we get into the off season. That's just kind of how it happens in the NHL. The life of an NHL coach is very, very difficult. Uh, you just get fired, and they, I mean, they find jobs, they bounce back quickly, but you don't last very long. I mean, it's pretty rare for a, a coach to last four, five, six years at, at the same team in the NHL. Um, so we'll see where these guys go next. And I know I've talked a lot about this on previous episodes with the Buffalo Sabres and how I think they're a horrible organization and everything they do goes bad. But Jack Eichel, man, this is pretty crazy what's happened. I I called this from before. I'm not pumping my own tires. I know a lot of people have said this, but I think he's on his way out of Buffalo. And it's been reported that he had a very contentious exit meeting with the organization. His team and his you know, guys that are around him, they're looking to possibly have a surgery to have an artificial disc replacement in his neck. Um, it's a pretty significant injury he has, and he thinks surgery will solve it. To my knowledge, it's he would be the first hockey player to ever have anything like that done. Uh, so definitely an element of risk there. And based on his press conference with the media after his exit interview, it, the rumors are coming out that the organization's doctors basically believe they can rehab and avoid surgery. But Eichel, he went out and per the collective bargaining agreement, if you want a second opinion outside of the team doctor, you got to pay for it out of pocket. So Jack Eichel paid for it out of pocket. He got a second opinion. Now he thinks he wants to have this surgery to have an artificial disc replacement in his neck. So it's pretty crazy because Eichel basically came out and said, you know, hey, I want to be healthy. I want to be the best player I can be wherever that may be. So that little piece shows that maybe he doesn't want to be in Buffalo. And he kind of insinuated that 
you know, he wants to get the surgery. And one of the reporters asked, hey, why don't you just get the surgery? It's your body, you know. And he said, it's not that easy. I'm under contract. This team controls me. I can't just go get surgery if they don't sign off on it, which is pretty crazy. So it's definitely a big, big battle between general manager Kevin Adams, who I think is an absolute jackass, by the way. just want to put that out there. But him and Jack Eichel, their top player, their center, uh, top center, their captain, I mean, it's this is not going to end well. And you know, like I said, he said he wants to be healthy, he wants to be the best player he can be wherever that may be, which means get me the fuck out of here. And I don't blame him at all. Uh, his no movement clause kicks in this summer, so you got to figure he's going to try his best to get moved. They said he hasn't requested a trade, maybe not formally or not explicitly, but with some of his comments and the way he's saying the organization's basically not letting me get surgery and I want to go somewhere else. Uh, I think they're a little bit delusional if they think they're going to keep him. But they've come out and they've said, you know what? We want players that want to be here. Well, newsflash, Kevin Adams. Big fucking newsflash. Nobody wants to be there. You're a dog shit organization. You've had how many years to turn it around? You've got Jack Eichel. You've got good other players like Jeff Skinner. You've ruined him. Sam Reinhart, we'll talk about in a second. He unfollowed the Buffalo Sabres on social media and took that he plays for them out of his bio. I know that's petty, as Mark Madden in Pittsburgh would say, Tom Petty. But man, like Rist, Erasmus Ristolainen even said, you know what, I'd, I'd be okay if they traded me. Sam Reinhart, he basically once traded too, like I just said. He, he had 25 goals this year. He was 10th in the NHL in scoring on that shit team, and he doesn't want to be there. Nobody wants to be there. Something needs to give. There's a big problem there, and I've been over this over and over and over and over again about the Buffalo Sabres. They're a joke. And now that they're trying to prevent potentially Jack Eichel from getting surgery, the guy's like 24. I mean, let him get his surgery. I know it's a risky one, but... Like, what the hell? You want him to be suffering with this injury for a long time? And I could see from his perspective, he's like, fuck, they're going to be ruining my career if I have to stay here. I Get me the fuck out of here. Uh, so it's just pretty crazy, man. I cannot believe what's going on in Buffalo. I shouldn't say I can't believe it because it is Buffalo, and their fans deserve better. I've talked about that. They've got great fans up there, but they've just been horrible for a very, very long time. And, man, you just you have to feel for Jack Eichel and hope that he can get out of there for me, I hope he gets to a team, and I know a lot of people have been pointing to the New York Rangers, the LA Kings. Uh, I've even seen the Minnesota Wild potentially could make a run for him. So it's possible that the Buffalo Sabres could get a haul for him, but they'd be going through a rebuild again, and that's exactly what Sam Reinhart and Rasmus Ristolainen and Jack Eichel said they don't want to do. I'm not here to go through another rebuild. They've been rebuilding for t- fucking 10 years now. Like, what the hell, man? I, I'm sorry. I, I, I know I'm cursing a lot, but, man, I just get fired up just thinking about it. I'm not even a Buffalo Sabres fan, but I couldn't imagine being a Sabres fan. It's got to be a very difficult time. So swig a beer for Jack Eichel, Rasmus Ristolainen, and Sam Reinhardt for coming out and saying what they think, saying what they mean, talking about what's on their mind and what's in their heart, and they want to get the hell out of there. So hopefully they can get out of there and get to a better situation with a chance to win. So, hey, if Jack Eichel wants to come wear the black and gold, I'll be all right with that. <laughs> I mentioned in the intro that an absolute gong show has occurred in the NFL. Like It was just crazy to me to read this. NFL teams actually received a memo from the National Football League saying that players that have guaranteed contracts or players that signed a contract in general, if they get injured outside of the team facility doing a workout or whatever the case may be, the team, per the verbiage in the contract, may be able to void that guaranteed money and not pay that salary. And obviously... 
this caused an absolute stir across the league. I saw Patrick Mahomes and other players saying, what, are we not supposed to work out at home and all this stuff? And I don't know the ins and outs of the contracts. I'm not an attorney. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but, I mean, those guys should probably call their agent because they're signing these contracts that probably say exactly what the NFL is saying in there. But just a crazy situation with Jawan James. He's a Denver Broncos offensive tackle. He tore his Achilles tendon in, an, uh, in a workout. I don't know if he was at his house or wherever he was, but it was away from the NFL facility. And he has a $10 million guaranteed salary, which may now be in jeopardy since he got hurt away from the facility, as I said. So unbelievable how that happens. I just can't imagine the bad PR, but if it's in the contract, it's in the contract. I don't know if the Denver Broncos are going to enforce that. I imagine from a public relations perspective, they're definitely going to pay this guy his 10 sheets um, because he's one of the better offensive tackles in the league. And he's just working out, trying to get in shape for camp and all that stuff. You know, it's not like, I, I just don't see like, I can understand if you're riding a motorcycle like Ben Roethlisberger back in the day and you get in an accident and you get hurt, then maybe your contract money should be voided because you were being a dumbass. But if you're just like working out at home and you happen to tear your Achilles, I mean, you probably would have done that if it, if it tears that easy or whatever the case is, you probably would have done that at the facility at some point anyway. And you're really trying to better yourself. You're trying to get in shape and help your team out and help your career out and stuff like that. I don't see how that's a big problem, but again, I haven't read the actual contract. I just thought that was a ridiculous story that I read. So hopefully uh, Jawan James gets his money. Hopefully he gets better and, just an unbelievable story out of the National Football League. Nothing surprises you anymore, for sure, out of the out of that league. Um, and in the NBA, uh, Russell Westbrook, uh, he's the triple-double king now. If you don't know what a triple-double is, basically it means that you have at least 10 in three different categories in a game. So if you have 10 points, 10 assists, 10 rebounds, that's a triple-double. You have 10 points, 10 assists, 10 steals, that's a triple-double. Um, so pretty crazy that he's the new king now. He's got 182 career triple-doubles. He passed legend Oscar Robertson, who held the record since 1974. Nobody ever thought that record would be broken, and a lot of people say that this record is a little bit inflated, and I tend to agree with that, but just the way the, the NBA is now, I mean, Russell Westbrook's a point guard, but he's averaging over 10 rebounds a game. Um, just pretty crazy. I mean, for a while there, he was like getting, he was averaging a triple-double in a season. So like that's what was crazy to me is like you haven't seen this before. Triple doubles used to be rare. Like whenever I was a kid growing up, and that's not that long ago. I mean, it's in the 90s and 2000s, but triple doubles were rare, and it was pretty awesome when somebody got one. But now it's like, man, Russell Westbrook, at least two years, and maybe even longer, he's been averaging a triple double every game. His his average on the season is a triple double. Pretty remarkable what he's been able to do, especially as a point guard. Um, say what you want about Westbrook. I always loved him because I was an Oklahoma City Thunder fan. I loved Kevin Durant. I loved Russell Westbrook. It's a shame that they broke that team up, especially when they had James Harden. Um, you know, they could have been awesome. They lost in the finals to the Miami Heat, LeBron's first championship, I believe. And I think if they would have kept that team together, man, you never know what could happen. But uh, swig of beer for Russell Westbrook, a remarkable accomplishment. I'm sure he's got a lot more triple doubles coming his way. So swig of beer to Russ. The last sports note I wanted to mention on this podcast was uh, the Kentucky Derby fallout. Medina Spirit, the horse that won the Kentucky Derby. And I want to mention that my buddy Dustin, who was on a couple episodes ago to break down the Kentucky Derby and give you some picks, he didn't say that Medina Spirit would win the Kentucky Derby, but he did say he would not be surprised if Medina Spirit won. So shout to Dustin on that. That was awesome. What a pick. Um, 
but Medina's spirit failed a drug test after the race. It's been reported that the horse was treated for dermatitis with an ointment once a day that popped the drug test and is a violation. Right now, Medina Spirit, still the winner of the Kentucky Derby, but second round tests have been ordered, and I don't believe those results have come back yet. And depending on those results, uh, Medina Spirit could be disqualified in Mandaloon, I believe is how you say the runner-up horse's name. That horse would be declared the winner. So I wonder how that would impact all the bets and wagers and everything that are placed on the Kentucky Derby. Like if you had a bet on Mandaloon, do you win the money now? Or if you had a bet on Medina Spirit or something and you got your money, do you have to give it back? Or I'm sure probably not. It'd be interesting to see how it plays out. I'll have to get somebody on here that knows a little bit more about gambling uh, than I do, uh, especially with horse racing. But, um, you know, I feel like doping in horse racing and cheating and all that is just pretty much par for the course. But it's pretty crazy because I did read about it that this is the fifth medication violation for trainer Bob Baffert. So me and Dustin, when he was on, talked about how um, Bob Baffert is just a complete creep, just a complete jabroni, basically. But he's always in the thick of things. He's always winning, but he's had five medication violations in the last 13 months. So got to figure, you know, the leash is short on him. And I believe uh, he's been banned from having a horse at the Kentucky Derby at Churchill Downs. I don't know how long that's going to be. I believe Medina Spirit is going to race in the Preakness Stakes. So we'll see how it goes if uh, Medina Spirit gets cleared from that second round of testing and remains the winner of the Kentucky Derby. But uh, just pretty crazy. So I just wanted to point that out. And lastly, as I mentioned last week, I wanted to watch Batman Begins and review the movie. And it was a star-studded cast. I mean, I enjoyed the movie, but it had Christian Bale, Liam Neeson. I was surprised Liam Neeson was in it. Cillian Murphy was in it. Uh, He's one of my favorite actors. He plays Tommy Shelby in Peaky Blinders. So he was a young Cillian Murphy. Uh, I'm sure I'm missing a couple people because I'm just not a movie buff. You guys know this. I'm sure I'm missing people. Uh, some actors and actresses that went on to do bigger and better things and have great careers or what have you because this movie did come out in 2005 but I just have a question because are all superhero movies the same because I watched Iron Man as I mentioned you know a couple episodes ago and I enjoyed that but it just seems like I'm not sure when the comics came out for Iron Man versus Batman, I know Batman Begins came out in 2005, Iron Man came out in 2008, but it just seems like it was the exact same story. I mean, hear me out. There was a rich guy who had his company taken over by greedy, crooked jabronis. They were selling weapons to bad guys or whatever the case is, and then Batman makes an indestructible suit and saves the world. Isn't that exactly what happened in Iron Man? Like, maybe that's why I don't like these movies or why I've never liked these movies and never wanted to watch them. It's the same plot line. Is that it? Is that it? I'd love people to reach out to me and tell me I'm wrong here. But like the first thing I said to my wife when we were watching this was like, is this not like the exact same plot line as Iron Man? Do they just lack that much creativity in these superhero movies? Like maybe I'm wrong and I've only seen two of them, but it's a bad start. If you're watching two of the most highly requested movies and they're basically the same, (laughs) and maybe that's sacrilegious for me to say and some Batman fan out there is probably fucking fuming right now but man I I thought it was a good movie like it was a solid movie I definitely crushed a couple Coors Lights during it Um, I'd say it's a 7 out of 10 at best Um, I'm definitely going to go ahead and watch The Dark Knight and see what Heath Ledger's all about everybody talks about how his performance was unbelievable and rest in peace to Heath Ledger Um, great actor uh, from what I've been told obviously I haven't seen too much of his stuff but um, I, I'm excited to watch The Dark Knight and see how 
how it turns out because I, I like I said, I did enjoy Batman Begins. I just thought it was very similar to Iron Man, and it just seemed odd um, that it would be like that. But I don't know when I'll watch Dark Knight Rises, but uh, we'll check it out and and hopefully it'll be enjoyable. And honestly, this has been an unbelievable episode. It's a great time to be a sports fan right now. The hockey playoffs are kicking off tonight, as I mentioned. Hit your local beer distributor, grab some silver bullets, enjoy the hell out of the weekend, and remember, if I don't see you around here, I'll see you around. Here. I feel the master. I feel the Y'all ready? They ready? Well, come on. Well, come on. Y'all ready? They ready? Fuck!